It's cited all the time in Massachusetts, the case that states that you can't bargain away the rights of a child to support. So no matter what type of agreement you have attempting to do that, while it might be indicative of your intent initially, uh, it's not going to be enforceable if it's going to deprive a child of support and there's no one else available to support that child. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for joining us today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from the great state of Massachusetts. And this is Craig Williams from a very beautiful, sunny, and warm Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out, How to Get Sued. Bob, we're going to take this time to thank our sponsors, Clio, a web-based practice management program for lawyers at goclio.com, and PC Law by LexisNexis. For a free trial, you can go to pclaw.com slash radio. Bob, I know you write some blogs. Right. I write a blog called Law Sites and uh, also a blog called Media Law. Um, well, uh, Craig, we're going to be talking about some of the legal issues uh, in, in vitro fertilization today. Uh, our our topic is spurred uh, to some extent by a recent decision by the Massachusetts Appeals Court, uh, kind of an interesting case in which uh, an estranged couple uh, got caught up in a battle over child support. Uh, twins, they had twins born through in vitro fertilization using donor sperm and eggs, uh, but uh, in a, a kind of an odd twist uh, to the case, the the the, twi- the uh, children, were, the in vitro fertilization took place after the couple had separated, uh, and after the couple had entered into an agreement uh, by which the uh, the w- the wife agreed not to hold the uh, the husband uh, responsible for any child support should he consent to the fertilization. Uh, so it's kind of an odd case, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, I guess. But well, and Bob, as you know, ultimately twin girls were born, and the mother uh, changed her mind, I guess, and turned to her husband for child support, waging a legal battle. And recently, the Massachusetts Appeals Court ruled that the husband must pay child support for the twin girls, and the couple's written agreement was invalid because the husband's consent making him the legal father. Yeah, and there are, there are a few other sort of strange uh, legal twists and turns to the case. Uh, uh, there really were a couple of different proceedings, both in the probate and family court here, as well as a separate kind of a, a breach of contract claim by the father here. Uh, and we can explore those a little bit more. But let's let's uh, talk about uh, this case and about uh, some of the issues raised by in vitro fertilization uh, nationally and across the country. Uh, and to help us do that, we have... Uh, Two guests, uh, very knowledgeable in this area, and we'd like to welcome them to the program. First of all, we have attorney Maureen McBrien from the firm Todd and Weld in Boston. Maureen is the co-author of a book entitled Assisted Reproductive Technology, A Lawyer's Guide to Emerging Law and Science, which presents a comprehensive overview of cutting-edge family law issues, including the various legal implications arising from the involvement of third parties in reproduction. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Maureen. Thank you. 
And Bob, our next guest is a certified family laws practitioner, specialist, and trial attorney, Violet Woodhouse. She's from Newport Beach, California. She's got an in-depth knowledge on a variety of family law issues, including support and custody issues that we'll be talking about this morning. And uh, welcome to the Legal Talk Network, Violet. Thank you. Nice to be here. Maureen, let's let's start with you. I just I, I know uh, the Boston Globe had a, had a big story about this case. Uh, the case has been talked about in legal circles. Uh, uh, g- give us an overview of, of of this Massachusetts case. Sure, I won't repeat what you said, other than briefly. But as you mentioned, um, this case involved a couple who was separated at the time, who underwent in vitro fertilization at Boston IVF, and each time a couple undergoes IVF at a clinic. Uh, the implantation part, uh, the consent of the spouse is required. So when donor eggs finally became available after the couple separated, the wife needed her husband's consent to proceed. And he was willing to so consent, but only on the condition that he not be held liable for any child support of any resulting children. And the parties reduced that agreement to writing, signed by both of them. And the wife went ahead, and sure enough, she was successful after the party separated and after a long period of infertility in conceiving twin girls. And they were born in 2003, and this was about three years after the couple had separated. And they did not get divorced until 2009, uh, and apparently it went to trial, and the judge issued an order um, holding the husband liable for child support. And that was the issue on appeal. Uh, another ancillary issue here is that the ju- the husband claimed that he only provided consent um, conditioned on the fact that the wife would uh, support his application for citizenship. So that was uh, came up later because he said he signed the, he consented to her undergoing IVF under duress, uh, and because she was going to continue to support his citizenship application. Um, so when he was held liable for child support and the issue on appeal is what is consent and what does that mean in the context of IVF? And did the husband in this case provide his consent? And the particular statute at issue is General Laws Chapter 46, Section 4B in Massachusetts, which actually references artificial insemination, not in vitro fertilization, but apparently it applies to both. And that statute provides that any child born to a married woman as a result of artificial insemination with the consent of her husband shall be considered the legitimate child of the mother and such husband. And the husband was saying in on appeal that he did not consent as required by this, this statute, that his consent was subject to this written agreement um, that he signed with his wife, that uh, she would not go hold him liable for child support if there were any children resulting from the IVF. But the court did not credit that and held him liable for uh, child support and said that uh, the consent under the statute doesn't necessarily mean consent to become a parent. It just means consent to create a child. And in, in essence, you know, but for the husband signing this consent with Boston IVF, these children wouldn't exist. So I think, you know, if, because of his actions, the children's came into being. So he is held on the hook. I think that's the crux of the whole case. Well, Violet, what is it that could be done to uh, overcome these kind of court decisions? I mean, is is it possible for a husband and a wife or a former husband and a former wife to reach an agreement with one another to have uh, to allow in vitro fertilization to go forward, but yet not have the husband liable for child support? Mm. 
Well, I don't know anything about Massachusetts law. First of all, I want to make that clear. But uh, as a just as a general principle, it, child support. Um, well, there are public policy concerns um, about the support of children, and um, even if, for example, in California here, not 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 an in vitro situation, but if you had a one night stand and you um, and that resulted in a child. Um, and you didn't know about it, and the, the, it, 10 years later, you still could be held responsible for child support of that child. So um, it, it, it doesn't sound fair, but, but what these courts are really attempting to do is to assure that we don't have uh, children that are born uh, and are not properly supported. So I think it's a public policy issue, and when any kind of an agreement that's made between the parties violates some fundamental kind of public policy issue, um, the the law, that policy is going to in, in, invalidate or, or at least won't allow the court to enforce that kind of an, uh, an agreement between parties. Well, that's, something interesting about this. That's my take this, on it. Yeah, something interesting about this Massachusetts case that, that we've alluded to is, is that uh, it was, uh, I mean, there had been a, a decision in the probate family court in family court regarding child support, but the husband had had brought this claim separately as as a breach of contract claim, uh, be, because the the wife had, had basically promised <laughs> promised not to hold him responsible, uh, and uh, and the, the husband sought to uh, hold her to that that promise in a breach of contract action. Uh, Maureen or or violent. I mean, have you seen have you seen this kind of sort of a, a collateral uh, attack on uh, on, a, on family uh, court obligations before? How common is this kind of a case like this? Uh, it happens. This is Maureen. It happens sometimes. Um, when you see uh, dual actions in in the superior court and the probate and family court in Massachusetts, but. Um, here it kind of backfired on him. His case was dismissed in the Superior Court, mostly on the grounds of collateral estoppel, meaning that the probate and family court had already addressed all of his arguments regarding uh, duress, uh, fraud, and all the same allegations he made in the Superior Court. So it seemed in this case he was just trying to take a second bite at the apple, having not been satisfied with the outcome in the uh, probate and family court. My comment is simply this. People can enter into any kind of agreement that they want. The ultimate issue is what what the court's going to do if if it's called upon to enforce it. And if it's uh, the court doesn't enforce it, it might uh, determine that it's not an enforceable agreement or violate some fundamental policies. Um, uh, it doesn't really matter what kind of an agreement you have, or who makes what promises. We all make you know we all make promises that that may or may not be valid or enforceable. Right, I, I agree with that, Violet. You know, the, it's it's cited all the time in Massachusetts the case that states that you can't bargain away the rights of a child to support. So no matter what type of agreement you have attempting to do that, while it might be indicative of your intent initially, uh, it's not going to be enforceable if it's going to deprive a child of support and there's no one else available to support that child. Um, that being said, people do enter into such agreements. Um, they are important to establish what the parties intended at the outset, but there's really no guarantee that they'll be enforced. Yep. 
that, that's the way I see it too. Is, is there a way? I mean, I mean, just to take it to the nth degree here down that slippery slope. What if uh, there was a third party involved in the negotiation, say a guardian appointed for the unborn embryo, and an agreement was reached uh, that involved that third party? Uh, would that work? I think it's. I think it's. It's really comes to the court. Really doesn't care that about all these adults that want to make all these agreements when it comes down to the whether the state should be supporting these children or whether the parents should be supporting these children. I just don't think it matters whether you have a guardian ad litem for an unborn child. I don't know that you can even have one, but nevertheless, um, I don't think it matters. All right. I mean, if there's a third party willing to step in um, to become a parent, like, for example, if parties are separated and let's say wife and new boyfriend want to go through IVF with husband's consent and boyfriend is willing to take on all parental responsibilities, then perhaps um, if wife went after husband down the line for support, the court might have boyfriend on the hook. But the problem with that is if there's a child born during a marriage, the child is presumed to be a child of the marriage and with all its attendant responsibilities. And if the husband consents to his wife undergoing IVF or any form of assisted reproductive technology and a child is born, it's the husband that's going to be uh, looked to. Uh, Well, what about the situation where you have a single woman who decides, or gay woman, that decides that she wants to have a child, and she goes to a sperm donor bank and gets sperm and bears a child? What responsibility does the donor have? None. It's a, it, I, How is I that any that's... different? Well, it's well, an anonymous because... situation. Yeah, right. Uh, donor is not a parent under um, the law. Uh, if he's anonymous and goes through a clinic, that's as a general matter. If you have what a known you know donor, donor, like a single woman using right. a friend uh, right. as a source of sperm, then you might have an issue with um, support on behalf of the donor. But I assume this is all a matter of statutory law. Is that right? I mean, where 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 the law does it tell us that that somebody who donates a, a sperm is not responsible for children born from that sperm? Right. Well, some states do have such laws that state exactly that. And then there's a model act governing assisted reproductive technology, which has been adopted by the ABA since 2008, uh, which states that a donor is not a parent. It's subject for enactment by any state legislature. Um and some states do already have such laws that mirror the Uniform Parentage Act, uh, which also states that the donor is not a parent. So in states that have such statutes, the donors are absolved of responsibility. Um, there are certain states that have no such statutes, though. Does it change if the donor comes forward at some point? I mean, I've read accounts of, of uh, donors who've, who've later had a change of heart and decided they wanted to uh, try and track down, uh, uh, you know, what became, I guess, right. uh, of their donations and basically outed themselves as the donors. Uh, does that change the situation at all if that happens? Well, there's two things. Usually when that happens, the donor is seeking contact with the child, not necessarily seeking to pay child support. So it can happen two ways. Either the typically the mother of the child tries to seek out an anonymous donor to sue him for child support. That has happened. Or you have the cases where the donor, usually a known person, comes out of the woodwork seeking to want contact. Um, these cases are all fact-driven. Uh, it does make a, it does make a difference whether they're considered known or anonymous. 
you know, if they've gone through a clinic or if they're actually known to the recipient, those uh, factors make a difference in how the cases come out. But um, most of the cases end up that, yes, there can be contact and along with contact, there can be support paid. What about the situation where a husband and a wife divorce? The husband disagrees and says, no, I, you know, absolutely not. Do not use my sperm, uh, even though it's frozen. Uh, In fact, I want you to destroy it. But yet the wife somehow manages to become impregnated with her husband's sperm against his wishes. Yeah, then you have the whole issue of consent, um, which is lacking in that case. And yeah, I, I think there's there's a I recall a case somewhere, and I don't know what the finding was. I don't specialize at all in in vitro situations, but um, there is a case that it it kind of argued that it, it was community property or something, um, and uh, it seems to me as though she had a right to get that. Uh, the, uh, the sperm. It seems to well, me if it was community property, wouldn't she only have right to half, <laughs> half of the sperm? Of it. <laughs> Maybe she just got <laughs> half of it. I don't know. I mean, as a matter of course, most clinics now are requiring the husband to sign off before there's any implantation. So if the husband in that case did not sign off, then the clinic would not go forward with the procedure. But if the wife was successful in um, becoming pregnant, uh, against his wishes and without his consent, there could be an action by the husband against the clinic uh, for damages because he would probably be held on the hook for support. Even what about a situation consent? where a husband and a wife get divorced? The husband remarries a new woman. Uh, she can't bear children, but yet there's uh, a sperm and an egg from the prior marriage. Uh, have you heard of situations where the new wife gets the old wife's egg and then the husband's sperm and bears a baby? Does the old wife then in that situation get held liable for child support? Uh, I don't. I, I think that's a totally, totally different situation. Um, and, and it is not that uncommon. In fact, I currently have a client who um, was not bio mom, but husband was bio dad. And, the, and in fact, a friend of theirs um, that, that, uh, donated the egg and, uh, but by, but the mom carried the child. And it, it, it is, there is absolutely, that is a child of the parties. It doesn't matter. Um, the, there isn't uh, um, any uh, claim for child support by the, the egg donor. What I wanted just to point out is I think what we're focusing on are facts that are specific to um, in the, uh, the, the adults in this situation. And, and what the court is looking at is not as much about adults as much as it is about who is going to be responsible for the support of this child. That, that's what their focus is. And they'll make their argument every way that they can because they want individuals to be responsible for the support of the child, not uh, the state or the government. And whether or not that we're not even talking about welfare here. They just simply want, you know, the parents, whoever those parents are. Right. And on a related note, um, towards that end, the in, in these types of cases, there's a theory called the intended parent theory, which is developing. And that basically says that those two persons are one person who intended to bring about the existence of the child at the outset are going to be liable for the support and care of that child, 
even if they change their minds afterwards. So for example, if man and woman create embryos as husband and wife, and then they get divorced, but a child is created anyway, and the husband says, you know, I'm not responsible for these kids because I'm not the biological father and we're divorced, the court will say, no, at the outset, you intended to create a child by creating these embryos with your then wife. And just because you've changed your mind and gotten divorced and things have changed and you're not the biological father, you can't uh, get rid of your responsibilities. So um, that's a trend you see in these cases. What about the situations that I've seen on television recently where you have one one woman and two men in a marriage or in a relationship where there are three people involved? How does the court sort out the situation after those parties separate? Is it basically then going to say, okay, well, the three of you had a child, so the three of you are going to contribute to the child support? Yeah, I mean, that, I think it would just be what's in the child's best interest. Is it in the child's best interest to have contact with all three of these people? Has there been uh, the equivalent of a parental relationship established with all three? Um, Yes, it is conceivable that they would all be liable for the support of the child, that they would all be considered legal parents. Again, There's no restriction in the law that it takes two parents to for a child. It can be three, maybe even four. Yeah, it can be. You can have biological parents. You can have de facto parents. You can have yes. You can have multiple sets of. It takes a village. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, on that note, we're gonna we're gonna take a short break. Uh, we will be back uh, with Maureen McBrien and Violet Woodhouse uh, in just a few moments to talk more about some of the legal issues surrounding in vitro fertilization. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to talk to us about the role of security in cloud computing. Jack, what about security? Are there any ethical or security-related concerns that need to be addressed with cloud computing? We're starting to see the first ethics opinions come out on cloud computing, and the early proposed ethics opinions like that from the North Carolina State Bar indicate that there are no ethical issues relating to the use of cloud computing in a law firm, but that as with the use of any third-party provider, an appropriate amount of due diligence needs to be undertaken to verify that the provider you're using has implemented an adequate level of security and privacy precautions and is essentially taking due care with your confidential client data. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Tired of all the headaches of running your law firm? Want to spend your time doing what really matters? Then you need PC Law. PC Law from LexisNexis is the legal industry's best-selling matter, billing, and accounting software. It has never been easier to manage your law firm and serve your clients. Get back to doing what matters to you. For a free trial, go to PCLaw.com slash radio. That's PCLaw.com slash radio. Or call us at 800-685-2161 today. 
You never have enough friends or followers, right? Check out Legal Talk Network on Facebook and Twitter, LinkedIn too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Our guests today are attorney Maureen McBrien from the firm Todd & Weld, LLP, and certified family law specialist and trial attorney Violet Woodhouse from Newport Beach, California. Uh, Does it really matter, and I guess we had a little bit of discussion beforehand, does it really matter what the parents want? You know, in this situation, the the one we started talking about in this case, the parents uh, separated instead of divorced. Is there a difference in the ultimate outcome of these parentage and financial responsibility situations depending on whether or not the parents divorce or whether the parents separate? Well, I don't believe there is. I think, uh, first of all, the question is really whether there's a support order. You're really only talking about the situation where somebody is actually going to court and asking the court for relief, right? Um, Normally that comes along either when there's some sort of a legal action, either by virtue of domestic violence or by a legal separation or by a divorce. That's normally. uh, Or if somebody just uh, you can actually get support if somebody just abandons the kids. Um, you can, there's a procedure for doing that as well. So you're really talking about uh, situations where the court is involved. Well, you know, we're talking here, as you say, we're talking about situations where the court is involved. And I, and I find myself wondering as I'm listening to the conversation whether there are uh, steps that a couple uh, should be thinking about taking before entering into in vitro fertilization uh, uh, to perhaps, you know, forestall uh, disputes that might arise. Uh, you know, they, they may be happily married and, and uh, everything's looking great, but uh, just as, just as uh, uh, you know, uh, the marriages uh, break down, uh, parenthood sometimes break down. I mean, are, should, a, should a couple, do you, would you advise, Violet, let me ask you, a, a couple that's, uh, you know, thinking about uh, going down this road uh, to... Uh, uh, memorialize uh, anything or, or do anything in particular uh, in terms of uh, an agreement between them beforehand? Well, I, I, I actually advise people before they get married to be uh, <laughs> uh, seeking uh, legal advice. But um, aside from that, um, yeah, well, I they think might not they, know before they're married that they would be going to in vitro fertilization at some point. Well, so. well, I mean, just just in terms of what are your responsibilities to each other when you get married, and what are your responsibilities to the children that you may produce. But aside from that, if uh, somebody is involved or try, in the process of making a decision, um, I would say they need, and I think that um, actually a lot of these um, uh, these kind of these clinics um, have uh, resources where you can and uh, probably encourage you to get legal advice on on all of this. And you should be finding out before you make that kind of a decision um, whether what what your ultimate obligations are to that child, no matter what what happens to the marriage. I think you can assume that if you are involved in uh, any process of creating a child in a marriage, I think you, you should just Assume that no matter what happens thereafter, uh, you're going to be paying child support. Right. And to add to that, uh, clinics do have contracts that couples sign when they before they undergo IVF 
that will delineate in many circumstances what will happen to the embryos in the event of divorce, in the event of death of one of the parties, etc. So you can uh, state that the wife will get the embryos if we divorce, or the husband will get the embryos, or they will be destroyed, or they will be donated to research, and so on and so forth. These contract clinics have been disputed years later when one party attempts to enforce them. So if, for example, um, it's said that the wife can have the embryos and the wife seeks to have a child after the divorce using the embryos created during the marriage, the husband might say, no, you can't make me a parent against my will. And in general, notwithstanding what the contract says, in general, the courts have agreed with the party seeking to avoid procreation in that circumstance, notwithstanding a contract that says that the wife can have the embryos. So it has come up. Um, The reality is it's like any contract you sign when you go in for medical treatment. Do you really read the entire thing? Do you know what you're agreeing to? Um, Are you really having it reviewed by an attorney? Probably not. Uh, And are they enforceable down the line? Well, notably in this case, the this particular case in Massachusetts, the court said that I mean the the husband had sued the the the, the clinic for a breach of contract, and and the court said uh, there was no contract between them, even even though the husband had signed some kind of a consent form or something like that. Right. Uh, is there ever a, a situation where where the the clinic uh, has been found, uh, uh, you know, responsible in some way when when things don't go right? Yes. There's been suits against clinics for implanting uh, one spouse without the other's consent, and they've been sued for the uh, for malpractice and negligence um, and for the amount of support that it would take to raise that child through emancipation. There have been suits against clinics for implanting the wrong embryo accidentally into the wrong couple or wrong, wrong woman. Um, creating a situation where um, genetically the child isn't um, who the mother intended to give birth to. So there's been several different types of cases against clinics in that regard. There's a situation in Texas that's been brewing uh, where a man has claimed that his wife stole a sperm and impregnated herself. Uh, In situations like that, can you imagine a court involvement and if it's early enough, uh, ordering an abortion? Oh, no. I don't think a court will ever... Well, I, don't, I, I can't, I can't imagine that. a court would do that or mm-hmm. get involved in such a politically. Um, oh my gosh! Well, what in the situation then when the when the husband claims and let's assume that he can prove that the sperm was stolen, and that the wife impregnated herself against his wishes, and then he goes in and says, "Look, I want her to have an abortion," and the court goes, "No." Well, then the alternate argument is that I don't want to be responsible for child support. How do you think the court would rule in that situation? It order him to pay child support. I agree. They would hold him responsible. Of course, it depends on how she got the sperm. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. The Texas case, he's actually seeking, uh, he's seeking custody. Uh, he's seeking to claim, the ch- prove the children were his. Uh, uh, he's not seeking to shirk custody in the case. Yeah, no. No, I was just yeah. making up a hypothetical. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've got just a few minutes left in our program, and it's uh, about time for us to wrap up and get your final thoughts. So, along with your contact information, Maureen, let's turn to you first. Sure. Um I think the crux of all this is consent, and if you consent to the initial uh, IVF procedure um, and a child results as a result of you providing your consent, you're going to be on the hook. 
Now, that being said, under the Model Act Governing Assisted Reproductive Technology, which I mentioned before, you can withdraw your consent in writing up to the time of implantation. So if you consent initially, embryos are created, and the implantation is yet to occur, i.e. there's no pregnancy yet, you can withdraw your consent in writing to the clinic. But once the, there's a pregnancy, um, no matter what kind of agreements you've entered into on the side or what you think or if you don't intend to be a parent, you are going to be held liable as a parent. And your contact information, Maureen? Uh, I'm at Todd and Weld in Boston, Massachusetts. My phone number is 617-720-2626. And I provide ART, Assisted Reproductive Technology Advice, um, on a routine basis. And please feel free to contact me. Great. Well, thank you very much. And Violet, your final thoughts and your contact information, please. As a general rule, uh, I think just people should understand that the fundamental public policy concerns are going to supersede um, any agreements that the parties make. So um, whatever agreements you make, uh, you, you ought to be praying that the court's going to see it your way because you, there's no guarantees that, that um, the agreements are going to be valid and, and may very well be invalid or at least unenforceable. Um, as far as I would like to give myself a little plug here, I, I wrote a book. It's now in its 10th edition. It's called Divorce and Money, How to Make the Best Financial Decisions During Divorce. It's on um, it's a, my publisher's NOLA.com. Um, it's on Amazon. It's on in all the major bookstores, which so, so many of them are gone now, but it, uh, nationally. Um, so that's um, one thing that if people uh, are have any questions about money and divorce, that um, is a great resource. Um, I'm at, in Newport Beach. My telephone number is 949-640-8861, and my firm is Violet P. Woodhouse Professional Corporation. Great. Well, thank you very much, Violet and, and Maureen, for being on the show today and answering some very tough questions and and uh, unusual hypotheticals. This uh, is certainly an area that is just fraught with uh, disaster uh, if you decide to... Uh, try to become a parent in any fashion or use in vitro fertilization. There seems to be all types of legal issues that are attendant to it and it'd be wise for people that are considering this to talk to a lawyer ahead of time. Bob? Well, uh, yeah, I'd like to thank both of our guests for taking the time to be with us. We really appreciate it. Um, and I'd like to remind our listeners that they can uh, get CLE credit through the West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts. Go to legaltalknetwork.com and click on the West Legal Ed Center icon there. And you can also find all of our great uh, Lawyer to Lawyer and Legal Talk Network shows in the uh, podcast library and iTunes. And thanks very much for our guests. Uh, and again, for reminding our listeners, we'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. We'll see you then. See you then. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. Its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.